I'd like to read for you from the first book, first chapter of the book of Daniel, a part of a verse, and then we'll go through the setting to help us apply a like lesson to our own day. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. It's not too unusual for young men to refuse to drink alcoholic beverages. There are some, at least, that do it. Many don't. But it is a little unusual for a young man to refuse to eat the fare that kings eat at their table. But this was not just a young man that was pushing the food back from his back on the table because he didn't know what to do with it. I know what that is in my younger days, to not be aware of just what to do when I sat down at some people's table that had things rather fancy. Almost embarrassing not to have the same food and the same setup that you have as a boy. But um, Daniel was not embarrassed. He knew what he was doing. He didn't want to take of anything that would defile him. And for some reason, the king's fare was likely to do, to do that, Daniel reasoned. So he purposed he would not eat this portion of the king's food, nor the wine which he drank. Amen. There's a difference between being stubborn and being determined or conscientious about something. Yeah. It may depend upon your point of view. If you want someone to do something and they refuse to do it, you might think, oh, you're just stubborn. And some people are for hardly any reason at all. They'd rather be stubborn than not about almost anything. You can discuss things with some people and they'll take the opposite point of view just to be argumentative, just to, just to talk. But these men, Daniel and his three friends, were in this far kingdom, Babylon. But they were there for a purpose, and that purpose had been hatched in the mind of the king, to bring these Hebrew children and teach them the language, the customs, and what they should know, to be occupying places of importance in the government. They should learn the way of the Chaldeans. They should be educated and schooled to be usable. And they were very high-class young fellows. They're about like the astronauts that we've had in our generation. Except the astronauts were slightly older because they had to have more experience to be able to do what they had done, and the younger men could not quite qualify for that, to do the feats that the astronauts have done. But they had to be specimens of good physique, good health, with no blemish, nothing wrong with them. And then, after they'd qualified to this, Daniel shows they had something more. They had that one added quality that our astronauts might have had or might not have had. They weren't called upon to manifest that. But these 
people, Daniel and his three friends who were there in this country, had one added thing. And that was that they had Christian or godly at least, godly convictions. And I'd like to challenge you to cultivate Christian convictions. Now, you know the Bible says that we can sear our conscience, doesn't it? How do you sear your conscience? You go against your conscience. When your conscience says, this is wrong, you ought not to do it, you steal yourself, go ahead and do it anyway, and soon you don't even have a guilty feeling for doing the thing that at one time you felt wrong about doing. That's searing your conscience. But to cultivate your Christian convictions, then you would do the opposite. When that monitor within you, your conscience, tells you you ought not to do that, then you listen and you refrain from doing it. Or when that conscience of yours says you ought to do it, no matter how fast your heart pumps now, no matter how scared you might feel, there's something within you that says you should take your stand. Now is your time. Speak up. Do this. Something within you tells you you should do that. So if you will get up the courage as Daniel did and purpose within your heart to do right, and to do what God says, then you'll be cultivating your Christian conviction. A seed to be planted must be watered, nourished, cultivated, have the right setting and the right environment to bring forth fruit. So do your Christian convictions. They should have a beginning, and they have that, because God put this conscience in all of us. To bring us, when we can't open the book and read what the Bible says, when we can't remember the specific quotation that would tell us what we should do or not do, even if we knew it, before we've learned it, maybe after we have already learned it and might have forgotten it, there still is that something within us that tells us that we should listen as the still small voice inside us tells us what's right and what's wrong. So when you respond in the right way to your own Christian conviction. You are cultivating that, and you'll have that to go by. You'll have that pattern set to follow, and you'll have that history of having listened when God spoke to you, and have the history of having God work for you when you trusted Him. You'll have the memory of that good feeling you had when you did right, And your convictions will grow stronger, be more clearly defined, and you'll be more able to to decide what's right and what's wrong as you have relied upon that, and your convictions will lead you if you let God do it. And you'll be sure that you're learning these things in accordance with what God's Word would teach you. Then you'll be able to do as Daniel did and say, when an occasion arises that tempts you, you'll be able to say, I am not going to do it. I don't want to do that. I could not do that.
Daniel purpose in his hearts, and he asked the man who was in charge of their welfare to give them a chance to prove that they could get by very well without doing what, the, without eating what they set before them. They were proved they were better off at the end of the test than they were before. They looked better, fared better. They were very, very healthy. God had proved that it paid them to stick by their conscientious conviction. They had a reason for this. They might have thought that meat may have been offered to idols. They were Hebrews, and the meat that the Hebrews eat, those who are orthodox and do as God told them to do, would not eat meat unless it was prepared in a certain way. They could not eat all that the Gentiles would eat. So they stood up for their convictions, and God blessed them. This was the beginning of a series of miracles. This was in Nebuchadnezzar's time, and shortly after this time, Nebuchadnezzar the king had a dream. He dreamed a, a big dream. It seemed to have a monumental sweep. It was something that, that troubled him, but he could not remember what it was. When he called in the wisest of his kingdom, all of those who should be able to discern these deep things, and told them his dream had gone from him, well, they said, we can't tell you this. They wouldn't know. But finally they sent for Daniel. Daniel came in, and he and his three friends prayed. God gave him the dream. God gave him the interpretation of it. He was able to spell it out to Nebuchadnezzar. And it was a dream that swept from his time on through the kingdoms to come. And even coming on down to our time, when Christ would come, when the kingdom of God would be established in the hearts of people. This dream swept that whole horizon and brought all of these prophecies into, into this book, into the Bible. God had worked in the heart of this young man who had said, I purpose in my heart not to defile myself. When God gave him his chance, God gave him an opening, and he stepped into it, trusted God, and gave that man that interpretation and gave him the revelation of what it all, all meant. Time goes by. Nebuchadnezzar becomes exalted. He was a great king, had a great kingdom. He looked over all he'd built there in Babylon and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? He exalted himself so high. Nebuchadnezzar would have had a conscience that would have warned him against doing that. He knew better than to strut himself and to, and to say things like that. Hadn't Daniel interpreted a dream for him? Hadn't Daniel told him that God who revealeth these secrets had given him this interpretation? It wasn't Daniel's might nor his power nor his intellect that did that. No, God had revealed the dream and the meaning of it. And Nebuchadnezzar knew all, this, did, knew all of this, but yet he bothered himself and was so haughty and so big that God had to lower him. And his reason went from him. He went out and in the field and lived like an animal. He lived out in the dew from heaven would fall on him at night. His hair grew long. His fingernails grew like bird claws. He was a wild-looking man and a wild man at heart. He even ate grass like the animals of the field did. That, but that was what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, God let his reason return again. He had a, he had a chance to get back to his mental reasonableness again. And yet after all of this, then when Belshazzar came along to serve in his place. The next king, Belshazzar, had a great feast with the thousands of his lords and 
All of the people there for a great banquet. They were praising the gods of silver and gold and stone and all of that. They'd forgotten also that God in heaven, the God of the Hebrews, the God that answers uh, people's prayers and gives them meanings from uh, great uh, de uh, depth and great meaning like he had to Daniel, he'd forgotten all of that. And that great banquet time, he was serving every god but the right one. And um, on the plaster of the wall, a hand appeared, yeah. writing a strange language. Yeah. Belshazzar couldn't understand it. There was the writing. And all of a sudden, the drunkenness and revelry of their party was suddenly stopped. And they saw that Belshazzar's knees smote one against another. Yeah. He was shaken. His very soul was shaken because he could see this was something different. This was this was different, like that dream Nebuchadnezzar had had. That was different. It was very important that he remember it. And now Belshazzar saw the writing. It was very important to read that. But who could read it? They finally brought Daniel. Daniel came and read the writing. And the writing was that thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom is going to slip from your hand. It'll be given to another. And that's what Daniel did. Da Daniel then came to tell him that. He stood before that monarch. He must have stood there with confidence and faith and with a determination to again do the right thing. He, he was determined now to speak up and say what he ought to say and, and to speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may, we might say now. But so he told the king the truth as to what that meant. And when that was all said and all done, Nebuchadnezzar just accepted it. That was it all right. And even that very night, Nebuchadnezzar was slain. Now, Daniel could have backed off and said, I, I, I can't quite uh, give you the message here. I, I don't think I, I better try to read that. It's very, very strange. Nope, that was not Daniel's style. Daniel had that something in him that would not defile himself by eating meat, drinking wine, shunning from his responsibilities, shading the truth, refusing to stand up and speak, refusing to tell the truth. He, he did it all. He, he told the truth. He stood for right. He did right and told the man, and the man was slain that night. So, Daniel, a young man before, had kings now that were waiting upon him. Kings that called him in and said, help me out. Teach me what to do. Let me know what the writing is. Let me have the, the interpretation of the dream the first one did, and the last one the interpretation of the writing. All of this follows that young man's action when he said, my convictions are worth more than my life. I have something within me that's more important than my physique, my health, my education, my future. I have something in me that's worth more than that. And these are those godly, God-fearing convictions. He had stood for them, and he still did. And the next king, Darius, comes on the scene. And he had his chance also to prove that he had to stand yet. When Darius had made a decree that people should not pray to any god save unto him. They shouldn't pray to their own gods anymore. Daniel went into his room, and he just closed the door, opened his window, and he prayed just like he had before. And the edict was that if you do that, you're going to be thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel just prayed and didn't worry about lions. There was something deeper in his heart than the fear of a king or the fear of wild animals. He had a purpose and a principle, a conviction there that was deep and it stayed. Amen. He cultivated that and kept it. Yes. 
He honored that above everything else, and he just prayed as he had before. And when the word went out that that Daniel over there is praying like he has been before, he ignores the edict altogether. So they got Daniel, threw him in the lion's den. He spent the night there, but the lion's mouths were closed. The king had the problem. The king couldn't sleep at night. Daniel had more peace in the lion's den than that old king did with a guilty conscience. He knew he oughtn't to put him in there. He had a conscience too. He'd heard about this man before, but he'd let the people trap him into all of this. He'd made this edict, and now he must let him go. But he went the next morning, and he cried out, O Daniel, the servant of the living God, has the God that thou servest continually been able to live to, to deliver you from the lions? He cried out seemingly with faith, believing that, that Daniel could hear him. After all, would you expect a dead man to answer? No, even the king knew something was happening here. So he spoke those words, and Daniel, full of life and vigor, and full of those conscientious convictions he had before, still true, still faithful, he cried out, O king, live forever. The God whom I serve is equal to the occasion, all right. He sent his, his angel, and they closed the mouths of the lions. They haven't hurt me. God was with Daniel when he purposed to do right. He was with him in the king's palace when he interpreted dreams. He was there at the banquet when he said, The handwriting means your doom is sealed. He was there with him in the lion's den when there was no hope of deliverance in a natural sense. Yes, it pays to be sure that you cultivate and keep good, clean Christian convictions. If you do, you can live with yourself. Whether you are sick or well, whether you're young or old, whether you are in the north or in the south, with someone or alone, if you cultivate Christian convictions and keep true to them, you will be happy and you'll have God's help and you'll be healthier and finally you will go to heaven because God will lead you step by step in the way you ought to go. And it's not only been... Daniel, there's been some more since that time. Paul the Apostle was a man of like stripe. He was a very hard man before he was converted. He was religious, but very hard and critical of Christians. He was persecuting them. But after a while, he became converted by a miracle of God, and then he was Paul the persecuted. He'd been a persecutor before, and now he himself was persecuted, stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead accused of false brethren, shipwrecked and saved, almost died more times than once. He had many trials, but through all of these, he kept his course, he kept the faith, and at the end he could say, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith. He had been true to his convictions. Little by little, he had known what to do, and praise the Lord, he had done it. And when the end came, he could die a victor, victor over circumstances because he kept to his Christian convictions and lived as he ought to live. He did right, and God honored him for it. Martin Luther did that. Martin Luther was a man that came to the knowledge of salvation, that the just shall live by faith. And that query he had in his heart there brought him to that light, and he finally knew what it meant to be justified by faith. And not by works, but by faith. He was saved. And after that, he was persecuted. He had to take his stand. 
He shook Rome as far as that's concerned and established the, Ref uh, the Reformation, or forwarded a lot at least, and had a great part in it, and all because when he stood there at that cathedral door and tacked that, uh, the thesis on the door, he did that saying, I can do, uh, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Here he was. He was uh, bound by his conscience. He had a, had a duty for, to his conscience more than to the officials or the government or anyone else. He said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And because of his stand, thousands were saved. We are a direct result as being Protestants of having a heritage handed us down from the time of Martin Luther. John Wesley, another. That man preached for 53 years. He was a preacher of holiness. He was determined to stand for God and right, and he did it. He, he preached the gospel where he could, and God finally opened doors and used him in a great way until we now also enjoy the benefits handed down to us from that generation of sanctification, a second work of grace that John Wesley taught and preached and finally died preaching. That's another heritage we have. In our own uh, recent history, we've had a woman, Florence L. Crawford, the founder of our church, who was a woman of stamina and courage, and if she had any attribute, she certainly had one that would stand for her convictions, no matter what people said or what they did. People offered her money to finance buildings and to finance her work and to, to give her a boost to, to finance her work. She said, you're not going to sew me up in dollar bills. If you're going to advance this work, you'll put your offering in the tithe box. You'll have no promise of how, how we're going to use it or build a monument to you and all your contributions. We'll trust God. God helped us so far. God will take us through. We won't pass the collection plate. We won't ask the public for money. But we'll preach justification by faith, sanctification, the second work of grace, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And for her efforts, they persecuted her and threw rocks and stones and cut down tents and things like that. But nevertheless, she stood. And in 1921, they built this very building we're in this morning, this tabernacle. And these grounds have been developed through these years. The gospel has been printed in many languages and spread around the world. God has honored people who will stand for their convictions and who will do so when they know they're right, then stand. Having done all to stand, stand therefore, the word tells us. So let's be sure we do our part along that very same line. Yes, God's honored those who stood for their convictions. You might think, but, but my convictions are not so strong. I don't have that dominant personality nor the charisma that other people have had to become great leaders or do something great for God. Maybe not. Maybe none of us do. But before God, we can certainly stand where we are and do what we can and tell it, speak the truth in our heart and compromise not, compromise never, compromise not even a little. Well, John the Baptist lost his head because he preached righteousness. It was right for a man to have one wife and not right for a man to put away his wife and marry another while her first, uh, while the first wife lived. So when this man, this haughty monarch, there in John the Baptist's time had put away his wife and married his brother Philip's wife. So John the Baptist, being a man of stamina, being a man of conviction, looked that old monarch straight in the eye and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. So he was imprisoned. Finally, 
this adulterous wife of Herod, uh, sent for the head of the, uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter. She didn't like it at all because she was the one that had married wrong to the, to the ruler as of now. Of course she was angry. Of course she was. I wonder where the preachers are who would say, uh, preach about divorce and remarriage like that these days. wonder where they are that would, would tell someone, it's not lawful for you to have another man's wife while that man is living. If the man is dead, then she's released, of course, from the marriage vow. But as long as they're living, they're bound by the marriage vows that they shall be married to each other as long as they both shall live. And it's still not right to go the wrong way. It is still right to do right. It is still unlawful to violate God's law. It isn't right yet. So let's praise the Lord for people through these years who've had courageous convictions and they've had uh, stamina and the good old grit to stand for the gospel. And to this very hour now, we are the beneficiaries of people who had, have, had, had convictions, have stood for them, and they've stalwartly and strongly defended the truth, and we should thank God for it. Now we come on the scene. Where is Martin Luther? Where is John Wesley? Where is Paul the Apostle? Where is John the Baptist? Where is Florence L. Crawford? They're all off the scene now. It's a different story. But God deals with you and with me as he dealt with them, same way he dealt with Daniel. God gives us a chance, and many times young people have a chance, as Daniel did, to take their stand when they're young, just to say, I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter what people think. I'm going to stand for God. I'm going to be right and righteous. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be fearless in my determination to serve the Lord. And if you do it, God will be with you all the days of your life. If you ever get great or not, it's not the important thing, at least when you stand before God. You stand before the judge of all the earth, then you'll hear him accept you and say, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. You've not done very many things, but a few things you've done. And the one things you have done, the things you have done have been right. Your convictions led you the right way. God helped you. And so you've been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. But that one who comes up before God to say what he has done, what he thought, and what, why he didn't do what God said. Trying to explain it, it'll all be burned up. Everything you've done will be burned up. Every man's works will not stand. No, they'll have to stand the test of fire. Will they stand? Let's ask God today to help us to be courageous cultivators of Christian convictions. Do that just, and you do that just by doing every time what you know you ought to do. And never, never, never doing anything that you know you ought not to do. If you do, you're driving nails in your own spiritual coffin. But if you'll do right, then you'll have God follow you and be with you as he was with Daniel, as he was with the three Hebrew children from the burning fiery furnace and with those of later date. Yes, God hasn't changed. God's word is eternal. God is the same today. And God deals with you as he does with me. And he deals with me as he did with others just the same today. So let's pray today as we close the meeting. You'll have a chance now to get down and pray and say, God, count me in. Let me listen as you speak. Let me obey as you tell me. Let me walk as you direct my pathway. And if we'll do that, God will hear from heaven and answer our prayers today. No matter what someone else does, God deals with you. Will you come? Will you pray? We're going to invite you to. We'll stand and sing 375. The altar's open for prayer.